for the people of Texas, Roe is effectively overturned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. You might be wondering, where does that quote come from at the very beginning? For the people of Texas, Roe is effectively overturned. That quote is from none other than Planned Parenthood Federation of America's CEO and president, Alexis McGill Johnson, the CEO and president of the largest abortion giant in the United States, admitted uh, on MSNBC the other day that for the people of Texas, Roe is effectively overturned, and that because of the Texas abortion law that came into effect on September 1, just several days ago. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get there, I'd like to introduce myself and my co-host here. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show. And with me is Cam, my good friend, a wonderful co-host. How are you, sir? I am doing well. I'm super excited for this interview. It, it's come about in kind of an odd fashion. I, I had heard about this through the news. I got the most recent update from the Pro-Life Action League, as we'll talk about who they are and what they do in just a moment here. And... On, on a bit of a whim, I just emailed them back. This was just a form email update that they had sent down. I just emailed them back and like, hey, any chance that Eric Scheidler, the executive director of one of the biggest pro-life organizations in America, wants to join our podcast? Not anticipating to get anything back, but his um, his assistant emailed back within like 15 minutes, I want to say. Be like, yeah, for sure. He'd be open to, to joining tomorrow for for an interview and so i've been a little bit giddy um joe joe scheidler obviously very many people are familiar with the godfather of pro-life action um and activism um eric scheidler his son is is doing a tremendous job carrying on his legacy with pro-life action league i'm really excited for this peter um i don't know if you can tell how are you doing <laughs> i i'm also excited for this yeah like you said uh it's an interview that came about on, sh on short notice but Really looking forward to it. And he's a smart guy. He knows a lot about what's happening in Texas right now. And he's really going to be able to provide some clarity to us uh, on what is actually going on. If you read the CBC or the CNN or MSNBC, you'll get one sort of series of events and, and sort of one way to spin what's happening. And he's going to provide some sort of counterbalance and a bit more helpful insight into what is all happening right now in Texas. So as we begin... Uh, before we get into that, rather, if you're if this is your first time on the program, I hate to to forget this. We are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to have effective and winsome conversations about abortion, to change minds, to save lives, and to transform our culture. And along with that, we want to keep you in the know with what's happening in the abortion war. Hence, this conversation. But if you want to learn more about pro-life apologetics and how you can have those really good conversations, do check out some of our other episodes. You can find us wherever you're listening to this right now uh, or on YouTube or on iTunes or wherever it might be and our website, ProLifeGuys.com. And if you want to join the Pro-Life Guys and our mission to get pro-life apologetics to more and more people in Canada, more and more people in the United States and more and more people around the world then do consider becoming a patron of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, patreon.com slash prolifeguys. The guest today, as you mentioned, Cam, is none other than Eric Scheidler. He has been in the movement since he was only six years old, following his parents from rally to rally, from protest to protest, leafleting neighborhoods and talking to his friends about the topic of abortion. He joined the Pro-Life Action League in 2002 as the communications director and in 2009 became the executive 
director, a position that he holds to this day. Through the Action League, he has formed grassroots pro-life groups across the United States. He's led demonstrations in front of Planned Parenthood facilities across the United States. He's led prayer walks and a whole bunch of other protests uh, and a lot of boots on the ground work. This is stuff that we're passionate about here at the podcast and in the organization we work for in Canada, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Uh, He really talks about and highlights the importance of the educational component of pro-life work. He has appeared in such media outlets as Fox News, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, the Washington Times, Huffington Post, among others as well. This is our conversation with Eric Scheidler. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you. Now, the last few days, we've heard a lot about this Texas abortion bill. Your media outlets are talking about it. Our media outlets here in Canada are as well, and I'm sure around the world. But not only that, like some of my Facebook friends are are expressing their absolute delight for the law. Some of them are absolute hatred for it um, because of their support for abortion. And, And there's sort of this sometimes conflicted, sometimes confusing sort of rhetoric on what this bill actually is and what it does. So could you introduce the bill to us? Uh, Senate Bill 8, I believe it was, in Texas. What are we looking at here when we're talking about the Texas abortion bill? All right, I'll do my best to try to explain this. It's a it's a very, very unusual law. It's uh, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And um, I have to say, I'm, I'm astonished that we're that we're here seeing it enforced in Texas. I thought there was no way that this would make this would make it through the gauntlet of the courts. So this is a, um, in some ways, a similar law to what we've seen in other states like Georgia and Ohio. It's a six week abortion ban. The state of Texas has decided that um, because the, a heartbeat can be detected right around six weeks, it's really a heartbeat ban. Um, because the heartbeat is such an important signal of the successful uh, end of a pregnancy and such a marker of, of the humanity of an unborn child, that they are banning abortion at six weeks. And so in that respect, it's not that different from other bills we've seen passed by different legislatures around the country. Uh, but what's different about it is the enforcement mechanism. Rather than the attorney general or some officer of the state, you know, a state's attorney, bringing a lawsuit against somebody like an abortionist who's violating this law. Instead, the enforcement mechanism is a civil lawsuit. Rather than a criminal case saying you're a felon, you've broken this law, it's a a civil penalty. You've broken the law and you're going to have to pay $10,000. It also offers a bounty to whomever it tries to enforce this law. Now, who's going to enforce it? Well, it's, it's not the attorney general. It's not the state's attorney. It's not any officers of the state of Texas. It's rather anyone, a citizen of Texas, a citizen of Illinois, where I live, a citizen of Canada, anyone really could bring an action against an abortionist, an abortion uh, nurse, a receptionist at the abortion facility, somebody who drove the woman to the abortion facility, the guy who paid for the abortion. They can, they can, bring this action against anyone involved in procuring this abortion, except for the mother, which is very interesting. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later. And what this means is that the abortion industry has not been able to stop this law. Because according to the way that the federal courts operate in the United States, and I imagine this is very similar to what we see in Canada, the courts don't actually enjoin a law. 
That is to say, stop it from going into, into action. Because enjoining is bonding, right? Stopping someone from doing something. A law doesn't do anything. It's just on the books telling us what other people are supposed to do, the, the actors in our society. So because the, 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 the courts have to stop a person from doing something, since there is no person that is actually charged specifically with enforcing this law the way that an attorney general or state's attorney would, they had nobody to sue. And so the federal court said, you, 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 you can't, there's no one to sue here. So you can't stop this law. That's what the district court said. That's what the appellate court said. And the Supreme Court finally stepped in and decided, well, they decided not to step in. They had a ruling that, well, we're standing by what the previous court has decided that you really don't have a case here because there's nobody doing anything to stop a woman from getting her constitutional, so-called constitutional right to abortion. The only way this could actually be enforced and, and so a lawsuit could happen would be as if somebody tried to do one of these illegal abortions or if somebody thought that an illegal abortion had been done under this law. Then they would, you know, f file the paperwork. They would start the process to uh, to bring an action against the person that they think was involved in this abortion other than the mother. Only then would there be an opportunity for the courts to step in. So. It's a kind of a game of chicken almost. It's like the abortion industry in Texas has to go ahead and decide to flout this law hoping that they'll get away with it uh, and that there'll be a suit that they can, you know, what woman's going to want to go to an abortion facility? You know, what, what boyfriend's going to want to drive her there knowing he could be fined $10,000? Maybe he'll get the $10,000 back one day if the courts decide in his favor, but it could be a really bad thing. So it's almost a game of chicken in this way. Um, but again, very unusual, very complicated measure. But I think it's important to emphasize that the fine is uh, is applied to so the, the abortionist, the, the, the receptionist, the nurse, not to the woman who seeks the abortion. I think that's very important because I've I've seen some propaganda from the pro-abortion side saying, you know, this puts a bounty on women's heads. It doesn't. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really, really good clarification because even uh, my wife, who is very pro-life, I, when I came home yesterday saying like, hey, we got this really cool interview coming up with Eric Schuyler to talk about this bill. And, and she was like, well, can he clarify about whether or not women are going to be the ones getting charged with this? Are they going to prison? Are they getting fined? All that kind of stuff. That's a fantastic clarification that this is something that these lawsuits go towards all of the people surrounding this abortion decision that are pressuring or or facilitating the abortion, but not towards the mother themselves. And and I'm curious on your thoughts as to whether you think that that's a really positive component of the bill. I, I think that in many ways, uh, pro-life is often characterized as, as for some reason, these um, – these jerks that just want to throw women in prison for getting abortions, that, that this is why we're against abortion, because we love filling up our prisons with mothers who get abortions, when really that's not our goal at all. Our goal, obviously, is to save the life of that child and to punish all of the forces that are trying to push the mother towards having an abortion. Is that the way that you see it as well? Do you think that this is a, a smart kind of yeah. angle that other states should take? Or what are your thoughts on this, um, this take by, by these um, Texas lawmakers? Well, I, th I think it's important to uh, to get some history here. Uh, before Roe versus Wade in the United States, I know abortion was legalized sooner in Canada, so I'm not sure what the exact story is there. But before abortion was legalized in the United States, um, there were only a couple of state laws against abortion that had any component of punishment for the mother involved. Um, 
in, the, the more common measure was uh, that the abortionist and those involved with actually doing the abortion, it was the abortion procedure that was illegal, not the woman's request of the abortion or going and seeking out the abortion. Now, in a couple of states, it was true that the woman could be penalized as well. But in fact, those penalties were never ever, as to our knowledge, we've searched very hard for this, never actually enforced against women. They were only there in the law so that they could put pressure on the woman to give up the abortionist. Otherwise, you know, if, if, if she might not want to admit who it was. So it was really just a way of getting at the abortionist, not really uh, something that was, uh, you know, going after the woman on sort of uh, intentionally to, to, uh, to penalize her. And that's really the model that we would continue with if we were ever able to restore legal protection to unborn children. Now, some people consider that to be hypocritical. Well, if abortion is homicide, if abortion takes an innocent human life, then the person who you know, sought that out, the mother who simply needed to do nothing and that child would live and be born, you know, why isn't she being penalized? Well, I understand that argument. I understand that point. Uh, but I think we have to remember uh, a couple of things. Number one, there is no situation like being pregnant. There is no analogy. There is no comparison to the relationship that a woman has with the child that's growing inside of her womb. In some ways, that's an incredibly intimate relationship. You can't imagine anything more intimate than living literally inside of another human being whose body is nurturing you, um, whose womb is your home, whose breasts will feed you when you are born. The connection between mother and child is incredibly powerful and intense. And it's one of the reasons I think we recoil in so much horror, we pro-life people, when we think about abortion and the, the severing of that relationship. And what often seems to us a cold heartedness in a woman who would seek an abortion. But there's another side to that uniqueness, right? Which is that the unborn child is an absolute and total stranger. It's not somebody the woman knows. It's not like the grandmother that they hired a hitman to kill so they could get the family inheritance. It's a perfect stranger who in some cases is showing up unwanted, even though we know that, you know, where babies come from and in the, not the vast majority, 99.9% .9 of cases, there's a choice to engage in sexual activity that leads to that pregnancy. Nevertheless, there is something very haunting about being pregnant at a time that you don't want to be. There's something that feels very alien about that unborn child. Now, we pro-lifers have a tremendous sympathy for that child, but we have to understand that shock of, of, of the sort of invasion of a stranger that a woman might feel. In fact, very many good pro-life Christian women feel ambivalent about pregnancy, even a pregnancy they were seeking. Sometimes when it becomes real, it's not just an aspiration, but a real baby that's coming and a real pregnancy that's happening and real morning sickness that's making you miserable and all the rest of it. You know, there's feelings of regret and confusion. And, and then women feel uh, shame, ashamed of how they're feeling that. Well, it's a very fraught and, and you absolutely unique relationship. And so trying to draw analogies to any other kind of situation, any other kind of relationship where you might seek out the death of the other uh, is really useless, I think, for us. Secondly, as a just a practical matter, we are never, ever, ever going to end abortion if we lead with the idea of jailing women who seek abortions. We understand how difficult that choice is. We understand that most women who are seeking abortion are being pressured by somebody else. Two-thirds of women getting abortions in the United States say that they feel coerced in some way. Could be the father of the child, boyfriend, husband, uh, uncle, uh, stepfather, uh, uh, the guy you're having an affair with, whatever. 
could be pushing you. It could be your parents are saying they're going to throw, kick you out of the house. It could be your friends, you know, your whoever. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on women. So how free of a choice is that going to be? And we know that that on the public relations side, we will just never, ever win. Um, even if we, so in some ways, don't like it, this is the path we have to take. I think it's the right path because I really do think that it's the abortion industry, whether it's a physician with a surgical knife, whether it is a pharmaceutical company with an abortion drug, uh, they're the ones who bear responsibility because they are cold-bloodedly not just killing unborn children, but creating an entire worldwide industry for destroying the lives of unborn children. So that's where I come down on, on that part of this. You also asked about, you know, will other states follow suit? Will other places be doing things like this? I really don't know. I've I've thought about that a lot. I think probably there will be some states, especially maybe in Oklahoma, a state that's very close to Texas, that might be inspired to go ahead and make a move like this to maybe try to create an abortion-free region of the country. And I, I would love to, to see that happen. But I think more likely legislators will take a wait and see attitude for two reasons. Number one, this is a very strange measure, you know, this enforcement mechanism, because under the current uh, law, there's a constitutional right to abortion, as they say. How can a private actor sue you when you try to exercise a constitutional right? You know, if if the state of Illinois, for example, were to set up some measure whereby a private citizen can bring a civil action against me for praying outside an abortion clinic, uh, but the state can't, I, I would I would be troubled by that. So I think that there's a, a good possibility that this law doesn't last, and I think some legislatures are going to be cautious uh, to, to copy Texas for that reason. But perhaps more importantly, reason number two to, to kind of wait and see here is the incredibly important Dobbs versus Jackson uh, Women's Health Organization case that's going before the Supreme Court this year. They'll probably be hearing oral arguments in that case in the, in the early um, or late, late winter. So, you know, that case, it's about a Mississippi law that bans abortion at 15 weeks. If the Supreme Court were to uphold that Mississippi law, uh, and it's hard to see how they can possibly do that without overturning Roe versus Wade. I mean, the, the, the logic, it would be, they'd almost have to create a, a more firm right to abortion than we even have now earlier in pregnancy to get away with a 15-week ban, because how else are they going to explain it? I mean, we're getting into the weeds here in a lot of uh, 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 constitutional um, analysis, but you know, with that law, I'm sorry, with that Supreme Court case about that that law in Mississippi going before the before the court uh, and a ruling certainly coming down probably by June of next year, I think a legislature is going to be much more likely to wait and see if they're going to have the the freedom to uh, enact the kinds of laws that would be uh, open to them if Roe versus Wade is overturned or if at least the Mississippi 15 week ban is upheld. Eric, you mentioned you mentioned a lot of things there, but there's one thing that I really want to sort of highlight for a minute. You talked about how the relationship between mother and child is a uniquely intimate one, and yet that child is a complete stranger to the mother and everyone else. Um, but it's something good for us as pro-lifers to remember. Now, one of the things that um, that I've read about sort of in light of this Texas abortion law is that Texas has also committed $100 million to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program which provides services ranging from job skills, training, diapers, baby formula, parenting classes, free counseling, and more. And is, I mean, there's, there's a, a long list of who's eligible for that program. 
Could you perhaps speak just in light of sort of the intimate relationship between mother and child and a lot of the challenges that women face, be it planned or in planned or unplanned pregnancies? Could you speak to the importance of a commitment like this, but also sort of the commitment of pro-life organizations and pro-lifers and churches as well to, to respond to this bill um, and this law rather by sort of showing that love and compassion for mothers and, and their children? Yeah, this is a very important aspect of the law and one that sadly we're not seeing the mainstream media in the United States, I imagine not in Canada either, really paying any attention to at all. That's a lot of money, $100 million going to basically help women choose life for their babies. That's what this is all about. Uh, number one, I think that illustrates the true commitment of the people of Texas to um, to safeguarding the lives of mothers and children. And in the actual statute, if you read it, that's very much the goal of this of this of this law. It is about safeguarding women and children. It, the mother has a right to know that her child has a heartbeat and that the heartbeat is such an important indicator of a healthy embryo, uh, which will become a healthy fetus and then a healthy baby that will be born. And of course, the life of the unborn child, the state has care for those children as well. And this $100 million um, you know, offset for mothers and children uh, expresses the true nature of this, of this law. And of course, it's also a practical measure that makes it more possible for women to actually choose life. And, you know, going back to, again, to, to revisit history, you know, back in the uh, early 70s when in, in the United States, the laws were changing about abortion state by state by state before Roe versus Wade, uh, the, the people of, um, I believe it was Nebraska, uh, I, I might, I might have been South Dakota, had passed an anti-abortion measure that included a massive, similar to Texas, a massive measure to enact um, pregnancy assistance for women all over the state. They saw those two things as going together. Let's write, let's write a really strict abortion ban, but let's include in that a really expansive program to help uh, women in need. Well, before they could enact that law, Roe versus Wade was handed down and it ended. So Roe versus Wade actually killed support for, for women in some states where these types of measures uh, were, being, were being contemplated or being enacted. And so here we have Texas bringing us back to where we were. We want to help, and not just through the government. And you know, I can't imagine a, a way in which we could really address the um, economic inequality and disparity and, and cultural factors that lead so many women to choose abortion without a serious government commitment. I mean, we're sovereign people, right? This is, this is how we do things. In a democracy, we pool our resources to taxpayers to pay for things that we care about, like not killing children. So I'm, I'm rather impatient with pro-lifers who insist that the government should uh, end welfare and just let everything be done by private, private charity. I understand that government assistance can sometimes backfire and things have been done very badly. And there's much about the American welfare system that enables uh, cycles of poverty. Those problems need to be addressed, but that doesn't mean dismantling our, our welfare state for, for the people who need it. It doesn't mean dismantling that, that safety net. Uh, but that said, there is an important role to be played by private uh, charities such as pregnancy centers, assistance centers that offer help to women. And so let's see a public-private partnership that really reaches out to women and says, we care about you. We care about your babies. We understand the difficulty that you're facing right now. We want to help. Let's do this together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to frame that. And, and this needs to be a, a response, a very active, very lively response from the people of Texas, from the people of America and around the world in many ways as well. And 
And I'm curious, as we start to wind down here, um, I, I'd love to make the jump. I, this is obviously a, a very exciting step for Texas. I, I think the, I think of many of my colleagues here in Canada who kind of bemoan the fact of why can't we get that legislation in Canada? Why Kathy Wagenthal, one of our members of parliament, recently put forward a bill that would simply ban sex, sex selective abortions. And that couldn't even pass in Canada. And And so often we look at America and particular states in America as being somehow fundamentally different in their ability to pass this pro-life legislation. And yet, though the political wins are often very concrete and very, very glamorous, I suppose, in some ways, the educational wins of the pro-life movement that build towards these political wins are often forgotten about in many ways. Now, as, as the executive director of the Pro-Life Action League, one of the largest educational pro-life groups in America, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, and and if you could characterize in some ways kind of the educational wins that have been happening over the past years and maybe even decades that have brought some states like Texas, Mississippi, others towards the place where legislation may actually be able to stand and and that sort of thing. Talk about the, the connection between the educational and the political successes that are now happening in America, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, as a as a pro-life activist, you know, Pro-Life Action League, actions in our name, we're, we're primarily a pro-life activist organization. I'm somewhat, uh, you know, kind of frustrated at times that so much attention is paid solely to the political side of this issue. Um, politics is important. Legislation, legislation is obviously very important because it can save lives. You know, measures like the Hyde Amendment in the U.S. that bans taxpayer funding of abortion, it's calculated to have saved at least two million children from abortion uh, over the decades that it's been enforced because it, we see that when state money is not there for abortion, abortion rates go down. Um, you know, parental involvement laws are also some of the most effective. Here in Illinois, we've had a law on, on the books uh, being enforced since 2013, which they're trying to overturn right now, it saved about 12,000 children from abortion because conversations took place with mom and dad that wouldn't have otherwise, and children were saved. So legislation is important, but you know, I'm an activist. I'm out on the street with uh, with the victim photos, showing people what abortion really does to its unborn victims. We're out uh, leafleting, educating people about Planned Parenthood. We're online doing education campaigns and programs, and you know. Uh, we're out there trying to confront the abortion industry, going to their fundraisers and protesting. And so often this kind of work is overlooked. But this is the bedrock of the pro-life movement. This is the foundation upon which everything else is built. If it weren't for the thousands of pro-life people that have been going out to protest those Planned Parenthood fundraisers, to pray during a 40 Days for Life campaign outside abortion facilities, to offer assistance through compassion and sidewalk counseling, uh, leafleting their neighborhoods, uh, getting information from organizations like Center for Bioethical Reform of Canada or by, from the Pro-Life Action League or, or, or any other organization that's offering that help and sharing that with their friends and neighbors so that they're expanding the, you know, the range of, of um, pro-life people out there in the land, uh, none of these measures would ever be possible. We've seen on so many other social issues, you know, an obvious one is the issue of, of gay marriage, where the culture has absolutely just swung from one side to the other in the course of really only a few years. You know, suddenly now we're all talking about what our pronouns are. And a couple of years ago, all of us would have thought that was complete madness. But on abortion, we're still in the battle. We're still in the fight in the way we aren't as Christians in so many other cultural areas. That's because we've been out there. We've been educating the people. We've been pushing back against that tide of propaganda and, and apathy that makes abortion possible. 
And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's overlooked by the media. It's overlooked even by some people in the pro-life movement. I think sometimes our friends in the political side, the legislative side, sometimes forget about us. And they don't seem to know what it is we do. You know, when they want to protest, once every five, ten years, they want an actual protest. And they call us up to help and think we just, you know, snap our fingers and 500 people come and pump their picket signs, you know. It's not really how it works. It's a day in, day out cultivating of leadership, of guiding people into, you know, all the things they need to know about working with the police, working with the media, you know, gathering volunteers, cooperating with the churches. There's so many, so many different details involved in pulling off a pro-life protest, a prayer rally, a demonstration in a city center. But all those things put together over the course of year after year after year and so many different groups and organizations doing their part has kept this issue alive. It's kept it in front of the people uh, in a way they can't turn away. It's kept it in front of our politicians. It's kept it uh, in the media. In a, I mean, look at how much coverage we're seeing of the abortion issue now. I, my view is every single time abortion is talked about in the media, it's good for pro-life because nobody's comfortable with abortion. Even pro-choice people are uncomfortable with abortion. They want to see limits. They don't want this regime uh, that we have here in North America of abortion on demand without apology through all nine months of pregnancy. And we're able to tell our story and win more converts every time this issue is in the news. And it's, you know, it's really on us day in and day out being there to, to make this change happen, you know, at the at the legislative side that we only see from time to time when a big story like this happens. Eric, I think you very clearly articulated the necessity of the pro-life movement, why we need to be out there on the streets. We love that silver bullet. I want that silver bullet. I'm sure sure we all want that silver bullet win. Uh, but those wins, as as you've explained, don't come just, you know, we, we wake up one day and there's a win. Uh, but it comes from years upon years upon years of boots on the ground, uh, having those conversations, challenging the culture and so on. Eric, as we wrap this up, uh, we mentioned on the top of the show that you're from the Pro-Life Action League. Can you share with us where we can find the Pro-Life Action League online, your resources and all of that, um, just in case our, our listeners are interested in learning a little bit more about your organization? Well, the Pro-Life Action League was founded in 1980 by my father, Joe Scheidler, um, who passed away this past January, I mean, just an iconic figure in the pro-life movement. He was known as the godfather of pro-life activism, a name he really deserved. And we continue to, uh, to follow his example and to carry on his legacy. He believed that he needed to bring the kinds of um, grassroots mobilization that he saw in the civil rights movement, having marched with Dr. Martin Luther King back in the 60s, to the pro-life movement. He wanted to see regular people get active in this battle, not just waiting around for the politicians, the courts, the media to do the right thing, but taking action in our own spheres of influence. So the Pro-Life Action League is dedicated to equipping and empowering regular pro-life people to take action in their communities through protests, through prayer vigils, through sidewalk counseling, through talking to the city council, talking to their friends and neighbors. We have an outstanding handbook called Sharing the Pro-Life Message, a tiny little booklet you can carry around in your pocket, but packed with all the answers you need to any question that's going to come up, whether it's about fetal development, uh, the legality of abortion, uh, how abortions are performed, who gets them, how to respond to those common objections like what if uh, the child was conceived in rape or what if the woman's too poor to have a baby or any of those types of objections that are raised. Um, we train leaders across. We're, we have a network of over 1,500 pro-life leaders 
uh, all throughout the United States and sometimes internationally that we work with on everything from how to coordinate with the police, how to get to the media to come to your event, um, how to recruit volunteers to come to a prayer rally or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, how to talk about this issue. So we're a, a training and equipping organization. Uh, we've been around for a long time, so we have a long institutional history, a great deal of experience, expertise that we're just so eager to share with whomever needs our help. Uh, right now, we're, we're working with a group in Rogers, Arkansas, where Planned Parenthood is trying to um, build a new abortion facility. And we're helping them to uh, find out what's happening, to contact their city and their county officials and, and get a, a grassroots you know, effort going to stop this place from opening in their town. That's the kind of work we do. You can find us at ProLifeAction.org. That's our website. Host of resources there, host of information there, videos, all kinds of great stuff. We're on Facebook at Pro-Life Action and uh, Twitter Pro-Life Action. We're just kind of ramping up on Instagram as well. So look for that that uh, sign, Pro-Life Action. That's where we'll be, and we want to help in any way we can. Perfect. Eric, we'll put the link to your website in our show notes in case any of our listeners uh, would like to go there. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the show today. Uh, it's been great to be with you, and uh, you know, God bless all your efforts up in Canada. Thank you. God bless you as well, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into that conversation. As promised, we will be putting the link to the Pro-Life Action League in our show notes. So go check out the Pro-Life Action League and get involved with them if you're anywhere in the area or get some training from them as well. Cam, any final thoughts that, that you would like to share before we start to wrap this up? Yeah, a couple things. I I mean, I, I think that that his experience and his wisdom speaks for itself. It's very much on display through this interview. He's been involved in the pro-life movement for so long. He's got so much of an understanding as to how things have worked at so many different levels. I think it's really fascinating. I think that he did a great job of, of really demonstrating how the the arms of the pro-life movement, the three arms that we often talk about, Peter, the pastoral arm of the pro-life movement that's seeking to make abortion unnecessary by offering top-notch support and care for mothers and fathers experiencing challenges and difficulties, how they work together with the educational arm of the pro-life movement seeking to make abortion unthinkable through educational campaigns and engagement, and how that at times flows into the political arm of the pro-life movement seeking to make abortion illegal through legislative ends, and how how these arms feed off of each other through the different work and ministry that they're doing to bring about the protection of preborn children, to make abortion not practice through these three ends, I suppose, and how I, I think often, especially of our political colleagues here in Canada and the the grief and and difficulty that they so often face, how many, I mean, not, not to put it too bleakly, but pretty bleakly, how many failures there have been legislatively. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that the educational arm of the pro-life movement sees far more victories, but those victories are far smaller. So then we, you and I, Peter, we see people change their mind on abortion almost on a daily basis on street corners and on doorsteps. We see these very small victories day after day, but rarely do we have such a, a grandiose victory akin to what just happened in Texas and what Lord willing will happen at some point here in Canada, whether on the provincial level, the local level, or even at the federal level, that will be a glorious day of monumental importance and, and victory within the political arm. But I think that's something that we need to further support our, our, our friends and colleagues in the various arms of the, of the movement in 
what success looks like for them, how often they are to encounter that success, how to build each other up so that together we stay motivated, we stay mobilized, and we save as many babies as we possibly can through whatever means we have at our disposal, I suppose. Well, I, I found that really, really fascinating. What about you? Yeah, I thought that was great as well. He had a wealth of insight into uh, what's happening there. But yeah, like you said, the the importance of the educational arm is something that I don't think can be overstated, uh, especially in our current cultural climate, uh, both in the United States and in Canada. One of the things he talked about, um, and we've talked about this in the past as well, is the fact that Abortion is still something that's talked about every single election and is talked about all the time as an indication of where the educational arm has had its successes. And, and this law, as you uh, mentioned, and as he clearly articulated as well, uh, is the is because of that educational support. So, um, again, we can't highlight the educational aspect of the pro-life movement enough. So if you're not involved, please do consider getting involved. You can do so by connecting with us, ProLifeGuys.com. We just had one intern uh, who became an intern with the organization we're with, the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Because she heard our podcast, connected with us, was looking for more opportunities, became a four-month intern, and now has plans to stay involved in a number of different capacities. And so that's really exciting for us that we're able to mobilize people and, and get them equipped. Uh, and so if you want to be that person as well, if you want to get in touch with us as well in Canada and the United States, if you want to connect uh, to other groups around the world and you just don't know where to reach out to, do connect with us and we will uh, we will help you do that. As I said off the top, if you want to become a patron of the Pro-Life Guys, patreon.com slash prolifeguys. Uh, it would be a tremendous help to make sure that our production value stays up, that our video content stays up, and that we're able to continue to have these good conversations and sort of maintain uh, a, sort of a, a healthy and good presence and a growing presence uh, so that more people have good conversations. Cam, you have one more thing to say. I saw your hand go up. Help us out. Uh, help us to, to to wrap this up. Couple quick things to say. First of all, big shout out on that note of Patreon support. Big shout out to our colleague Carolyn, friend in the movement, um, who has recently become a Patreon supporter. Big shout out to her. We super appreciate it. And we super appreciate everyone who's already part of our Patreon team. I know that our Patreon account is lacking a little bit in um vivacity, I suppose, is possibly the right word. Um, that is growing. We have been talking about it. We've been featuring different t-shirts. We finally got our third t-shirt design come in. I was going to wear it for this episode, but it's too far away and none of you want to see me change my shirt uh, in the middle of an episode. And so that will be featured. We'll be sharing um, some contests on how to win free swag. We'll be showing um, our new levels on Patreon. And so absolutely do that. Another thing that that I, I want to tap into I would love to hear about how this podcast has impacted your pro-life outreach. If you're somebody who has been doing pro-life outreach from before this podcast came about um, just over a year ago and it's helped you improve your conversations, I want to hear about it. If, if it has helped you have the courage to start having conversations, I want to hear about that. If, if you're a teacher who has integrated lessons into your religion classes, if you're a, a pro-life leader who's been integrating some of the content into whatever you've got on the go, we would love to hear about that. We know that we have people listening our goal, obviously, as a podcast is to concretely improve the conversations that are happening, not only volume, but also the efficacy of them. And so if you have, if you feel as though you've benefited from listening to this program, we'd love to hear about it, not just so that we feel good when we close our eyes at night, but also so that we can learn about who's benefiting and how we increase and how we develop new programming that is going to even better serve you. 
Peter, both you and I have some some very exciting ideas that we're both percolating on for how we continue to grow this program, whether it's in ways that you can connect with your neighbors better or other stuff like that. We, I, I would just love to hear how this has benefited you, how it could benefit you even more. And so if you can, if you can shoot us a comment on our website, prolifeguys.com, if you want to hit us up on social media, you want to go to your favorite um, podcast catcher and leave us a review on there, whatever, whatever that looks like for you. We just love to hear how this um, podcast has impacted your life in any way. And if it hasn't, how it could, I guess, if, if you've listened to this and you feel like you've enjoyed it but you haven't learned a whole lot or haven't gotten the concrete skills you're looking for help us help you i suppose and so that's what i would love to leave on perfect thank you sir and and if you think that we need some correcting we'd love to hear that as well because we're always trying to learn as well anyway that's a wrap that is this episode thank you so much for tuning in and we hope you tune in again next time (laughs) 